Hey guys, welcome to episode 102 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're all doing really well and are in the mood for some murder today because we have a true crime heavy hitter. And I, I'm a little nervous because I don't want to screw this bad boy up. Don't be nervous. I'm sure we are all ready for this episode. Yes, I know. Um, there was a little bit of a delay, but here we are back again. And there, we're going to stick to our same schedule. So that means that next week, you're also going to get an episode. So two weeks in a row of True Crime Couple. That's not bad. No, not at all. So in this case, I'm going to try and be as neutral as possible. So John, you and the audience can form your own opinions without me like trying to influence you so i do have a difficult job ahead of me (laughs) i think you can handle it give yourself some credit no i know but i feel like these big big cases where people are passionate about one side versus the other side um criticisms always come our way but that's totally normal because when people are really passionate about a case they tend to really feel one way or the other so I'm going to try and be the neutral zone but again John is hearing this the same time you are and he really has no clue about this case so it's just going to be his raw reaction to everything really no it's true and honestly every once in a while I always try to like you know get (laughs) try to like read it or something and you're like no you can't and I'm like you know what you're right I'm always because I'm always so interested and I'm like the anticipation for that to happen, like when we actually sit here and record it and I'm hearing it for the first time, it's uh it gets me going. So sometimes I try to like peer in, but she doesn't let me, so No, and you're totally blind coming into this one. So are you ready? Uh, let's go. When you're young and standing at the altar on your wedding day, looking at your significant other and exchanging vows, you're thinking about the rest of your lives. All of the birthdays, holidays, houses potential children, vacations, and just every exciting opportunity that the future holds for you both. When you hear and repeat, for better or worse, you aren't thinking of the worse, just the better. And when you hear, until death do you part, it only registers to you as a figure of speech, not in actuality. But what if that does happen? What if 114 days after you marry the woman of your dreams, you find her unconscious and not breathing in the home that you share? You frantically call the police and tell them what happened or what you thought happened. All of those plans that you had are crashing around you. And then the police start to question the situation and you. And next thing you know, you're being charged with murder. The world thinks that you killed your wife. Your friends and family don't believe that you could have. But what if you did? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Ryan Widmer grew up on the west side of Cincinnati, Ohio. He has one older brother and a twin brother named Aaron. Ever since he was a young boy, he was obsessed with sports. His brothers and his cousins, who he was really close with, 
described him as being caring and sensitive. He had never been one to get into a confrontation with any of them. Ryan even felt uncomfortable horsing around with them all. And in 1990, when he and his twin brother were around nine years old, his parents got divorced. For years, the couple tried to co-parent. It had been very difficult for them, Ryan's father Gary in particular, because Ryan's mother Jill really had all the boys on her side. And, you know, that's the boys lived with Jill full time and then they saw their father on the weekends. And I think that the two parents did have a combative relationship still. So the boys did side with their mother. And in 2000, just one year after Ryan had graduated high school, the Widmer boys chose to stop speaking to their father. Although he was heartbroken, Gary respected his son's wishes. And all throughout high school, Ryan had played sports. Baseball was what he was best at. And because of this, he earned himself a partial scholarship to Miami University. Not in Florida. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I'm glad you said that because I myself always get that confused when watching college sports. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, that is... This Miami University was located in Oxford, Ohio. And Miami University is known for its stellar academics and beautiful campus, but it does have a a pretty big sports program. So it was really great that Ryan got a partial scholarship there. Now, he wasn't admitted to the main campus. Um, He went to a satellite campus in Hamilton for two years And then um, when his performance was really well on the baseball team and his academics were up to par, then he went over to the main campus, which is located in Oxford. So he, he really made a name for himself at the school and everyone that roomed with him, played sports with him or had school with him, really, they loved him and his personality. Eventually, he earned a bachelor's degree in sports studies. And almost immediately after graduation, he was able to get a job working for facilities and operations for the oldest tennis tournament in the nation. This position was a stepping stone to get him the coveted spot at Warren County Convention and Visitors Bureau, where he worked in sports marketing. And there he really was able to do what he went to school for and and what he wanted to do. He basically was in charge of setting up different sporting events. I would say like at like a little league level of like bringing things towards Warren County. But he also was trying to pull tourism into Warren County as well. And he did that through working with a lot of amusement and water parks in the area. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, that you're so involved with like, you know, whether it be sports or activities that you could do. That's kind of cool. And it's it seems like he did a really good job. He also seems very charismatic. Yeah, he really did um, love his job from all accounts. And I mean, that's really good because sometimes when, you know, you hear like someone's majoring in sports marketing, you're like, oh, no, I hope things work out. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. It's almost like when someone majors in history and you're like, what the heck are you going to do with that? So you don't have many options. (laughs) We just teach or work in a museum. So which might be cooler than teaching. I would say less stressful. Less stressful for sure, right? (laughs) So his first year at the Warren County Convention and Visitors Bureau was a little bit tough for Ryan. Although he loved the job, he was dealing with some difficulties in his own personal life. 
the grandmother that lived with him was dying. And when he would go on lunch break from work, Ryan would often go home and spend time with his ailing grandmother. He helped in sharing the responsibilities of taking care of her and was often found at her bedside. Those who worked with Ryan thought he was the sweetest son and grandson for his dedication to his family during such a difficult time. But his co-workers and friends noticed that there was something missing from Ryan's life that might make him a little bit happier. A girlfriend. And a lot of people noticed that. They thought Ryan is such a great guy, so why isn't he dating anyone? And this is why Ryan's old college roommate, who he was still best friends with, asked him to go on a double date with himself and his girlfriend and his girlfriend's co-worker and friend. Her name was Sarah Stewart. Sarah had grown up about 25 miles north of where Ryan had, but her hometown was a lot smaller than Cincinnati. The Stewart family lived in a 1,300-square-foot ranch house that was hand-built by their father, and they lived there their whole lives. It's It's very, like, small-town beginning type of feel, you know? Yeah, it's adorable to grow up in a house that your father built. 100%. Sarah was born in 1984, three years after Ryan had been born. She, too, played high school sports, volleyball, soccer, softball, and was a cheerleader. So she was really active, and she also had this charismatic personality. Sarah was considered by all that knew her to be a beautiful girl, inside and out. She was kind, caring, and a very loyal friend. She did make sure that everyone knew how she felt, though. Sarah was known to be very outspoken. And from what people said, she had a very type A personality. She was organized, she knew how she liked things, and because of this, she often took control of situations that she was in. But her trademark was her unique high-pitched laugh. Everyone knew it was her, and it was very contagious. Sarah had always wanted to go into the field of dentistry. After her first teeth cleaning, she fell in love with the field. Which is why when she graduated from high school, she entered the dental hygienist program at Raymond Walters College in 2006. Once she completed her studies and practicum, she was hired immediately at a dentist's office in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, which is close to the Ohio border, about four miles from Cincinnati. So this whole kind of event takes place in like southwest Ohio. So she's always going to work in Kentucky. Okay. The couple that set up Ryan and Sarah on, I guess what you could call a blind date, did so because they felt like they were so alike and they were about to get married. So maybe Ryan and Sarah would too. And they were right. The double date went very well. And after that night, Ryan and Sarah set up a date for just the two of them. From the accounts of friends and family, the couple fell hard for each other. They seemed to blend very well together, as if they'd been together all along. Sarah's family loved Ryan, and vice versa. It seemed perfect. The couple's friends said that they had a dynamic that worked for them. Sarah really wore the pants in the relationship because of her type A personality, whereas Ryan was a lot more laid back, and he just kind of went with the flow. Plus, he was head over heels in love with Sarah so he would do anything for her. They said the couple never fought in front of them, 
but they did have a teasing sort of banter that was adorable to watch, and it was because they really shared the same sense of humor. But the couple also had their fair share of hardship early on in their relationship. Sarah's father had been diagnosed with malignant melanoma. His illness was very hard on the Stewart family. But Ryan was there for Sarah every step of the way. Maybe because he had helped care for his terminally ill grandmother, he understood the pain that Sarah and her family were going through. About one month before Sarah's father died, in March of 2007, the couple, knowing that they were really ready to commit to each other, bought a beautiful home together in Hamilton Township, Ohio. This was about four months into the couple dating. They really felt like the four-bedroom house in a subdivision of Hopewell Valley was large enough for them to start a family in. Ryan was kind of adamant that he wanted to start a family by the age of 30, so they were kind of on the fast track here. And I feel like sometimes that happens. Um, couple, even though Sarah and Ryan are young, but there is this acceleration of a relationship when two people find each other. They both have similar goals like they want to start a family pretty soon but they also have both gone through this these events these tragic events where Ryan's grandmother and Sarah's father have passed away and and sometimes when faced with like the mortality of and yourself basically you you kind of accelerate things yeah I could see that and that must be difficult for both of them I would just say that you know I know for me (laughs) This is just purely my opinion. Four months is is pretty short. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying. You're not wrong. Um, But I just, you know, four months to me is a little, um, you know, premature. Because you truly don't know (laughs) how it is to, like, be in 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 a... in a house or an apartment with that person and how they might conduct themselves. Not to, not to say that that would be your deciding factor, but it's definitely something to get used to. I mean, we did that. It took us a little while to get uh, a little accustomed to how we do things. Yeah. And we, I think it was like a year and a half when we moved in together. Yeah. Um, I do have to say like at the four month mark, I feel like you're still in that honeymoon phase. So you really kind of don't, have a true understanding of what someone's like. And then again, too, like dating and living together are two totally different things. So um, I do think at least it's good that they're living together before they're engaged. Like they can see what it's like. Buying a house is a massive commitment, but uh, it is what it is, right? But yeah, but then again, they are in their 30s. No, no, they're not. Oh, I'm sorry, he is. He's 27 and she's 24. Oh, never mind. Why did I, why did I speed that up? All right, well. Well, because I, I said he wanted to have a child Oh, by, by 30. 30. Okay, I understand. Yeah. All right. So this house is now a 45-minute commute to Sarah's job and a 20-minute commute for Ryan. They were happy there, and they were proud of their accomplishments at such an early age. A few months into owning their home, Ryan spoke with Sarah's mother about having her daughter's hand in marriage. Sarah's mother agreed that this would make her daughter very, very happy. And um, she did later say that she had some slight reservations about Sarah's marriage to Ryan only because um, she knew that Ryan made a lot less money than her daughter did. So she didn't like that. I guess that's like kind of an old school 
totally old school way of thinking. But I mean, I think they're both pretty successful if they're able to buy a, a four bedroom house at 24 and 27. Oh, agreed. I so. mean, they both have uh, <laughs> looks like they have, you know, very promising careers, both of them. So, yeah. you know, the growth is there. So I'm not, I wouldn't be concerned. Right. Ryan just started his position. So anyway, I just wanted to like put that in there because that is a fact. So that was the only reservation that Sarah's mother had. And I mean, that goes to show that she didn't have reservations about the love that the couple had for each other, just their financial situation. So Ryan had inherited some money from his grandmother after her passing. And his grandmother made it very specific in her will that the money that she left her grandchildren, she didn't want them to spend frivolously. So he felt like the best way that he could spend his money is um, basically a promise to his future wife of uh, a lifetime of happiness. So he chose to use his money to purchase an engagement ring for Sarah. Well, that's really nice. Yeah. A solitaire one carat princess cut diamond engagement ring. So prior to being together, Ryan had gotten a dog for himself, a French bulldog. Sarah had grown to love the dog as much as Ryan did. At first, she was like iffy about the dog. But then um, she began to call CJ, which was the name of the dog, her own. So because of this, Ryan chose to use their dog to help pop the question. Sarah had just gotten out of the shower when Ryan sent CJ up the stairs to greet her. The ring was attached to his collar. In a towel, standing in the threshold of their upstairs bathroom, Sarah saw that CJ had a ring on his collar. When she looked up, Ryan was down on one knee. He asked her to marry him, and she said yes. Very sweet. Yes, very cute. A good use of props. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it would be in that bathroom where the couple began their engagement that Sarah would lose her life. On the night of August 11th, 2008, Ryan claimed that he was downstairs watching the preseason Bengals versus Packers game on TV. He said that he went upstairs to check on his wife, who was supposed to be soaking in their upstairs bathtub. Sarah often suffered from migraine-like headaches, and soaking in the tub was something that she often did to alleviate the pain. Her brother would also state that Sarah loved taking long baths. Growing up, she would be known to like complete her schoolwork in the bathtub, so it was something that she did often. When Sarah got home from work, she kind of told Ryan that she wasn't feeling good, so she said she was going up to take a bath. But when Ryan went to check on her, he stated that he found her half submerged, face down, floating in the bathtub. So this is when he placed a call to 911 that would be played on national news over and over again to be analyzed by many an armchair detective and talk show host. Now, I know that I don't have to say this to all of you true crime lovers, but we know that people deal with stressful and traumatic situations differently. There are many in the camp that believe Ryan was in complete and utter shock during this call, while others believe that he's creating an alibi for himself. Here, I just want to present you with the facts. And we're going to approach this from an unbiased standpoint so you can make your own judgment calls about the 911 tape. So what I'm going to do now is play the 911 call in its entirety. 
If listening to 911 calls is something that you do not like, um, I will let you know that the 911 call is four minutes long, so you can fast forward if you don't want to hear the 911 call. My wife fell asleep in the bathtub and I think she's dead. What's, what's the address? Yes, Morrow, Ohio. And what's going on? Uh, she fell asleep in the bathtub. I think I was downstairs. I just came up here and she was laying face down in the bathtub. In, in the water? Yes. How old is she? She's 24. Go 
ahead and put the phone down and try CPR for me. Uh, okay. Yes, I am. Come on, Ben. Come on. Okay, so what are your initial thoughts? Okay, initially, it doesn't sound like like anything nefarious, right? It doesn't sound like he has any ill intent. It does sound like he's panicked and in shock. You can tell that he's feeling some sort of emotion because he's, I mean, he's he's sobbing with the 911 operator. Yeah. And I do hear him trying to perform CPR when he's asked. I, I don't, I don't get anything weird uh, from that. I've heard other 911 calls before, okay, and they've sound they've sounded questionable. Yeah. Whereas this one doesn't really give me that vibe. I could okay. be wrong, but I, I No, this is your yeah. initial thought process. It doesn't sound weird to me. Okay. Um mainly because she does have a history of falling asleep in the bathtub and she liked to take long baths. Could something have happened? Okay. I don't know. I don't know. We're not there yet, but that phone call doesn't seem suspicious to me at all. Okay. Um, before I get into like the thought processes that um, people have based on this 911 call, um, both on the side of Ryan and against Ryan Widmer, I do want to mention that the director of the 911 center or like call center um, did resign after this phone call because I think beyond the reaction of Ryan Widmer, there was some other concerning things that took place from the aspect of the 911 operator. And uh, the director did have to resign because it was clear that proper training had not happened within that call center because you do notice long periods of pauses. Ryan Widmer wasn't really listened to. You could see like a few minutes into the call, he asked how he's related to the victim whether it was um like he was the mother it's it was very strange um the right questions weren't asked he was told to drain the bathtub uh the 911 operator said did you perform cpr he said yes but the body was still in the bathtub so it was a very strange call all together and the 911 call operator did have to resign well it didn't yeah like you said it didn't sound like he was listening because from what i gathered he already drained the bathtub and then he asked him to drain the bathtub well i think that it was just this person was probably overwhelmed didn't receive the proper training to even handle a call like this didn't know what to do because really draining that water is going to compromise what became the crime scene so he should have been asked to remove the body and leave the water within the tub. So it really wasn't the 911 operator's fault. It was that he didn't receive the proper training. So that's why this is kind of a jumbled mess of a 911 call. Yeah. Okay. So some questions that get brought up in regards to this 911 call, first and foremost, is how does one fall asleep in a bathtub? Because... I mean, that's impossible. You would wake up if you were drowning. That's true. 
So some believe that that was Ryan offering up an excuse as to what took place within the first sentence of his call. So he was already saying, like, I was downstairs watching TV and she fell asleep in the bathtub. So that was his alibi and an excuse as to what had taken place. Uh, Many also find it interesting that Sarah was found face down in the bathtub. How does this happen? Now, this is one of those large soak tubs in an oval shape, you know, like those soak tubs that are in a McMansion style house. Sarah is 5'1", but if she was found in the bathtub and we are to believe that she fell asleep, which isn't even possible, but just say we're going with that. How could her body have turned over on itself? It really wouldn't have even had, even though she was a very small girl, it wouldn't have been able to take place that way like there was not enough room in the tub for her to come like fall over and then ryan's statements are going to contradict themselves because later he's going to say she wasn't found face down so it kind of goes back and forth yeah we're going to hear obviously about a ex- uh, medical examiner report right yes but i mean until then like you never know could she have had some sort of pre-existing conditions that f- maybe led to her being knocked out somehow maybe she had something happen she she she, maybe she stood up hit her head somehow and in that you know in that moment it like turned her over or maybe he is just incorrect maybe he found her a certain way and can't recall there's like so many little things there that can really make make or break the entire outcome here he is obviously in shock I mean, let's face it, if anyone was in any sort of traumatic experience like that, they might not remember every little small detail. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has to be an overwhelming situation. And and like I said, I'm just, I like to just be, you know, open-minded. I'm not saying I'm for him or against him at this point. Right. But I'm just saying anything could be um, a factor that could have made this happen. Right. And within the call, Ryan states that the water is currently draining And then he says that the water is completely drained, which is it. He also states at dispatch that he has tried to perform CPR on Sarah, the little that he does know. But then within seconds, he says that he has not yet taken her out of the bathtub. So how could he have performed CPR if she was still in the bathtub? Later, dispatch has to ask him to take her out of the bathtub. So CPR can't truly be performed unless on a flat, hard surface. So if she's in a bathtub, she is not able to lay flat. So how did that take place? And like the lip of the tub is pretty high, so he wouldn't have been able to lay her flat in the tub and perform CPR. So as to when he performed CPR, they questioned this. Another thing that people have issues with and will later come up in trial is at first when the dispatcher says perform CPR some people say it sounds like Ryan is just blowing into the phone and then you'll hear dispatch say put the phone down and give her CPR and then you hear a different type of blowing sound like someone is further away trying to perform CPR So was he like trying to make the impression that he was giving CPR? Okay. Right. Now those that support the idea of Ryan's innocence just state that he is in shock and believe that the long silences are just him sitting in stunned silence, feeling like he has no control over this situation and 
Nothing can be done for Sarah. At this point, she's not breathing and she is unconscious. And in fact, the word stunned is what his supporters use to describe the whole phone call. All of his inconsistencies and ramblings and back and forth and panic, that really explains everything that he's saying and doing because you can't expect someone to be in their right mind when they've found their wife dead in the va- in the bathroom they share. No, it's true. I mean that like I said before, that is extremely traumatic. That's that's all there is to it. They also claim that water can be heard draining from the tub. The clip obviously, the audio isn't of high quality, but if you listen kind of closely at one point in the 911 call, it does sound like water is, you know that sound when it's the end of the water going down the drain, it's like that loud sound. It does kind of sound like you hear that within the 911 call. I mean, I know that I'm staying neutral here, but I always find it really hard to analyze 911 calls because, again, you never know how someone's going to react. And in a panic state, you never know how you're going to, you're not thinking about every word you say. Unless you're planning the 911 call, and then you are thinking about every word that you are going to say. So it is, it's tricky to analyze 911 calls because I feel like someone could say a sentence and it could be interpreted five different ways. Also, you you know, I do. And also, everyone's emotionality is different. You know, you, you are, your emotions are different than my emotions. Yeah. You know, and the next person, you know, whatever. It's, you can't. You know your emotion. You can't always look over at some random person after listening to a 911 call and say, oh, they were acting strange and try to analyze their emotions. It's different. And it's hard to do. Yeah. So whatever you may think about the 911 call, we know that paramedics entered the house and desperately began trying to save Sarah's life. They were trying to get her to breathe again and her heart to beat. As CPR was being performed, she was moved onto a stretcher and rushed to a hospital. The paramedics and responding officers that were at the scene would later say that they were shocked to see such little water in the bathroom and on Sarah herself. They stated that her body was dry and so was the rug beneath her, but her hair was damp. It is important to note that they were able to arrive within minutes of Ryan's 911 call. Six minutes to be exact. She was rushed out of the house. Paramedics still working on her. Ryan following behind. There was no room in the back of the ambulance because CPR was continuing to be performed. Uh, The paramedics had actually tried several times to intubate Sarah. um, Five times to be exact. And they were trying to get IVs in her arm. Um, it failed attempts to do so. So eventually they had to put an IV in her neck. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they were working really hard to revive her. Ryan was ushered into the front seat of the ambulance. He had a cell phone to his ear and he was sobbing. He had been trying to call both Sarah's mother and his own. Finally, during the ambulance ride to the hospital, Ryan was able to get in contact with them. His mother lived closer to the hospital and would be able to make it there faster, but Sarah's mother was also on her way. 
When brought to Bethesda Arrow Springs Hospital, after 45 minutes of paramedics and later doctors trying to revive her, and with no sign of life being seen, Sarah was pronounced dead at 11.41 p.m. A nurse went to the waiting room to inform Ryan and his mother that Sarah had not made it. His mother and the nurse later recalled that upon hearing the news that his new bride was dead, Ryan fell to his knees and sobbed. Yeah, it doesn't sound to me that uh, that's someone that wanted their wife dead or their fiancé dead. I think the time frame here is important to look at, too. Like, they had moved in together four months. Then they got engaged. And they've really only been together for 10 months at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, what a whirlwind to, within one year, meet each other, buy a house, Sarah loses her father, get engaged, get married, go on a honeymoon to Costa Rica, um, and then within four months of your honeymoon, Sarah's dead. It's, they've only known each yeah. other for 10 months. It's It's bizarre. It's just it's horrible. Um, I don't know. I um, I just think that someone that you know this guy doesn't seem like he wants his wife dead. Yeah. But I will say, what the police said and what well what the first responders you know in general said kind of makes sense though too. If he calls nine one one, and shortly thereafter they you know they're there they're trying to resuscitate her there in the house. Why isn't the floor wet? The rug wet? Why isn't her body wet? Her If her hair is damp, then the time frame doesn't make sense then. Yeah. Because then what did he do? Dry up the floor? Dry up everything? Like, I don't know. To me, that doesn't make sense. It should be soaking wet on the floor. The dryness is what puzzles especially, people. Especially if he pulled her body out, right? And yeah. drained the tub? Mm-hmm. Even, even when, like, the... Uh, the, the um. The 911 operator told them to do it, right? At that point, the floor should be wet. Yeah, because um, within six minutes of him making the phone call, they arrived. Now, the phone call was um, cut off at the end, but I know that we only played four minutes and 10 seconds of it, but in actuality, it was... Four minutes and 45 seconds. Um, the tail end of it was just cut off because it was the paramedics arriving. And it's interesting because then that means that two minutes later, everything was completely dry. Yeah, so let's just say in five minutes it was dry. Six minutes it was dry. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Even I know that, you know, women know this a little bit more than men do. But my hair, when I get out of the shower or the tub, if I've been submerged in water is soaking wet, not just damp. So that would have created a a puddle of water in and of itself. That's true. So shortly after the news that Ryan received, he and his mother were visited by a coroner's investigator. So what is the role of a coroner's investigator? Well, the job description of a CI varies. But in this case that we have today, They would investigate Sarah's death because it was deemed suspicious by the doctors at the hospital and the paramedics at the scene, as well as the first responding officer. So the CI is to interview the witnesses, 
Ryan, the doctors, police officers, and family members to obtain all facts concerning the death. They are also responsible for heading evidence collection and the filing of official reports to police to begin their investigations. So basically, after he speaks to everyone, he's going to be the one to indicate what needs to be taken from the house to be counted as evidence. I didn't actually know how that went down, so I'm glad you told me. Well, it's different in different jurisdictions. So in some counties, there is a coroner's investigator, and in some counties that there's not. And it's only a medical examiner who is going to perform the autopsy. And that report is done uh, with a police presence and given directly to the police. And the detectives are the ones who handle the investigation. So it all really depends on what county you live in. That's really interesting. Yeah. So the coroner's investigator asked Ryan some questions about the night and how he found Sarah's body and what he had done after he found her body. After speaking for about 20 minutes, Ryan signed a consent form for the investigator, which gave him and the police department permission to probe the house for clues about her death. Later, Ryan would reflect that he had no problem signing everything because in no way did he think that he would ever be a suspect. He was too devastated by the loss of his wife. And later, the police would reflect that they had suspected Ryan right away because his story was not plausible and his statements were inconsistent. That night, Ryan was going to stay at his mother's house. He said that he couldn't stand going back to the house that he had shared with Sarah, the one that she died in. From the hospital, he drove with his mother back to the house so she could go inside and retrieve some of his things. While Ryan waited in the car, his mother went upstairs to his room to get clothing for the next day. She saw on the dresser that Sarah had left her rings there. Most likely, she had taken them off just before getting ready for the tub, so she decided that she wanted to bring them to her son. Maybe they would comfort him. While she was walking back towards the stairs to leave, she passed the master bedroom. She couldn't help but look in. She was shocked to see that squares had been cut out of the carpet where she assumed Sarah had been laid. She remembered thinking that that had been strange, but she didn't want to upset her son. She returned to the car and drove silently as her son sobbed the entire way to her house as he held Sarah's rings in his hand. That night, it was reported that he stayed up until 5 a.m., talking about Sarah with his mother and aunt and uncle that had come over. After he had signed the papers for the coroner's investigator, Ryan had been called by a detective, the one who would be working on Sarah's case. He asked if he could speak with Ryan down at the station the following day. Ryan agreed, but later on, at the advice of his family, he obtained a defense lawyer for the questioning that was supposed to have taken place the following day. At first, he only agreed to help Ryan through the questioning to be safe at a fee of $1,000. They didn't think that Ryan was later going to become a suspect. But what they did not know was that the coroner's report was not favorable for Ryan at all. First, there was the scene. No splashed water, dampness, or wet towels were found at the scene in the bathroom nor were any dry towels found in the dryer. 
that shows that the scene was never watery or it was never cleaned up. So I think that the fact that there was no wet towels or towels in the dryer like help and hurt Ryan, right? It means the scene was dry, which doesn't make sense, but it also shows that he didn't try to clean anything up. That's true. So it's like it could go either way for him. But either way, you know, whichever way it turns, it shows that he was lying about something, um, about her being fully submerged in the water. He couldn't just simply drain the tub and there was no water anywhere. But it was also clear that there was no violent scene that had needed water to be cleaned up from. So it, it was just more confusing, this piece of evidence. There were also no glaring scenes of a struggle in the bathroom or anywhere in the house for that matter. Another interesting piece of evidence was the TV stations. Ryan later stated to the coroner's investigator that he had been watching the preseason Bengals game against the Green Bay Packers. However, the downstairs TV where Ryan said he was watching the game was not tuned in to the channel that had the game on. So the TV downstairs was actually turned off. And when they turned the TV on, it was a different channel. The TV the couple had upstairs in their bedroom had been tuned into the channel that the game was on. So was he not telling the truth about where he was watching the game or if he was watching it at all? I mean, I I don't think that's sufficient evidence to make an accusation. I mean... He could have been flipping through the channels downstairs, right? I mean, and and as to why it could be the same, the the right, the correct channel upstairs, maybe that's he knows that th- that is always played on that channel. Maybe he watches the games before bed, or maybe he just leaves it there. Or he likes a program that is on that channel, and he just leaves it on. Right. I don't know. I mean, like that's just not enough to like, you know. It's not enough for you. No. It was also noted that the tub itself was mostly dry, except for a few droplets around the drain. Okay. See, that's something that is more pressing. The fact that the bathtub was dry that she was laying in, except by the drain itself. Right. Well, usually when, I mean, I don't know about anyone else, but like when I drain a bathtub, it does stay wet by the drain and the tub itself isn't necessarily wet. Yeah, but I think what they're trying to say is, think about it, if you're in the tub, right, once something goes into the water, the water level goes a little higher, so when you drain it, it should still be, like, a little bit wet. Well, I just feel like the most important thing to note here is time, and that we don't have any indication of that. So, are they looking for droplets of water one minute after the water was drained, or one hour? Because, of course, it'll be dry if it's... You know, it's it's yeah. so hard because there's so many factors when it comes to water evaporation. Um, you know, thinking back to seventh grade science. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true though. I you you are making a good point. I think that that is that is what's really the biggest concern is that none of that correlates with one another. The timing and the yes. amount of wetness, I guess, yeah. in that area in the bathroom that doesn't add up from the beginning of this. Right. And um, later on, I mean, I'm spoiler alert, but they do take the bathtub from the bathroom as a piece of evidence, uh, which is has never been done before. But I think that actually hurt the investigation 
because then they weren't able to perform uh, controlled experiments on the water evaporation within that room and in that tub. Right, because it's it's the other factors in the room, Correct. not just the tub. Yes. Again, the statement from the paramedics was heartbreaking. They spoke about their failed CPR attempt, their five attempts to intubate her. They failed to find a vein in either arm, so they had to put an IV into her jugular vein in her neck. And then they had to um, finally wrap her breathing tube in place, so they had to put a strap around her neck to hold the IV in the breathing tube onto her correctly. Uh, these men really truly did do everything that they could to save her life. But unfortunately, they weren't able to because there was no heartbeat or breathing when they had got there. But they did try for 45 minutes and did everything they could to to get her to come back. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, no one can sit here and say that they didn't try oh, and, no. and do everything they could. So, And uh, later on, it will be said that, you know... Of course, 45 minutes of CPR is going to be like abrasive and trying to intubate her so many times and the failed IV attempts. And in no way later on when we talk about these attempts to save her life, are we saying that the paramedics did the wrong thing? We're just talking about the injuries that she may have sustained from those attempts. That's all. So I just want to make that clear as we're not saying the paramedics are at fault or responsible for anything when we get there don't worry we still have a long time john okay let's (laughs) let's get there let's do it (laughs) so the paramedics also stated that they didn't see any wrinkling or pruning on sarah's fingers which they would have expected to i mean remember ryan did say that she had been in the bath um for 30 to 40 minutes so he went to check on her she went up to the bath at 10 o'clock and he went to check on her at 10 40 So even if she was in there for 25 minutes, you would think there would be some pruning on her hands or toes. Toes for sure. Because what if she she wanted to have her arms on the outside of the tub? Yeah. The feet, though, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they were out. You just put another wrinkle in this. I know. (laughs) But there was no wrinkles in her fingers. Right. When it came to her physicality, they stated later that the coroner and the coroner did this as well but there were no obvious wounds on her body or signs of trauma so remember when you said like what if she had fallen and hit her head there was no signs of that like her having any kind of trauma and then passing out so that wasn't there it also showed that there was no like kind of fighting she had a manicure like a french manicure and that was not like manipulated in any way it was still like a perfect manicure and pedicure on her toes and fingers and uh in some places it'll say that she had acrylic nails on but that's not the case she had her um regular nails and the french manicure was painted onto them which helps us out when it comes to dna collection um because when you are you know say you're trying to defend yourself and you're scratching your assailant you're going to collect more dna with your regular fingernails than you would with acrylic nails oh wow yeah so 
there were no signs of that, like a struggle. And you would expect that if someone's holding you underwater, that you are going to struggle, whether you're kicking your legs or, you know, you're flailing your arms, there would be some type of bruising, but there was nothing. That's interesting. There's really, that's actually crazy that if there, okay, so she didn't fall, she didn't get hit. There's no strangulation marks anywhere. No evidence that she was trying to claw or kick. Then what could it be then? I know. It's crazy. So when police and paramedics arrived at the scene, Ryan was only in his boxer shorts. And the police noted that Ryan did not have any wounds on his body. So there was no, you know, like attacking wounds. Right. According to the account, Ryan said that she had gone to take a bath at 10 p.m. and checked on her at 1040. So again, he said, I thought she fell asleep in the bathtub. So this is the report that he's giving the coroner's investigator. So he is still kind of sticking to the story that he really truly did believe that she fell asleep in the bathtub because he's saying that's the only thing that he can think of happening because he didn't know what happened to her. Okay. We also found out in the report why pieces of the carpet had been cut out of the master bedroom. Officers who had secured the scene after the ambulance left had found two small blood stains on the carpet in the location where Sarah's body had been laying out. One was near her pelvic region where she had been laying and the other by her head. The carpet was felt and it was dry. And that was where the blood stains were. So they had cut it out. So just so were they small stains? Very, very small. Sarah was uh, bleeding slightly from her mouth. Okay. So that was the only blood that they could have thought of, but because there was no cuts on her body. It was just there was some blood frothing from her mouth. And that could have been from the, like, CPR attempts that were made on her life. Uh, Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, was there a toxicology report done as well? Yes, there was one done. And there was nothing? Well, I'm going to wait till I get to it. Okay, damn. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, what you're waiting for, John, the medical examiner's report. It was like a perfect intro. Yeah, there you go. And I didn't even mean to do it. There you go. (laughs) While county coroner, well, this isn't necessarily a medical examiner's report. This is the county coroner's report. So it appeared at first glance that Sarah didn't have any injuries. But in fact, she did have a few injuries. The coroner observed both external and internal injuries to Sarah's body. Externally, Sarah had faint bruising on the right side of her forehead petechial hemorrhaging, the rupture of blood vessels due to an increase of pressure on the inner surface of her eyelid, bruising on the left side of her neck, a contusion on the back of her neck, an abrasion on her left armpit, and bruising and small laceration to her upper lip. Internally, Sarah had significant deep muscle hemorrhaging, in the anterior of her neck and contusions to her scalp. The coroner took microscopic samples of Sarah's brain and heart for testing, but did not observe anything out of the ordinary when examining the organs. A toxicology report was ordered, 
but before the results of the report were received, he determined that the manner of Sarah's death was a homicide. In the county coroner's opinion, the injuries Sarah sustained occurred before her death and were not consistent with the injuries commonly resulting from CPR. Days later, the toxicology report was completed, and it indicated that Sarah did not have drugs or alcohol in her system, only a small amount of caffeine at the time of her death. Okay. So she obviously got into some sort of altercation with someone. I do want to just make a comment here, because when you read all of that out, it seems like there was a lot of like bumps, bruises, and a and abrasions on Sarah's body. And that wasn't necessarily the case Um, of the bruising that could be seen. uh, They were the biggest one was no bigger than the size of a thumb. And it wasn't visible. You have to remember because people observed her body and they didn't see anything. So that has to show you how small these bruises and well, like a contusion's a bruise, but how small they were. Right. I mean, like... It wasn't a violent struggle that took place, is okay. what I'm trying to say. So it's it's weird, because you would assume that if there was this violent struggle, there would have been more bruising. Right. And they, w- they would have been larger and more, and more noticeable, yes. you know? So those who are in support of Ryan felt as if the decision should not have been reached before the toxicology report was made, that it was too early in general to rule Sarah's death a homicide. There was also particular noting within the coroner's report that stated that her skin appeared dry. This was something that was obvious as her body had arrived at the hospital one hour before meaning that she had been pulled from the tub an hour and a half before the autopsy was performed. So, of course, it would be dry. So, was this a leading observation made because the detective who suspected Ryan of being guilty and was working the case was in the room with the county coroner influencing his thought process? I see what you're saying. And those that support Ryan also think it's convenient that there was no audio recording or voice notes made during the autopsy, only physical notes. Is that something that always takes place? Um, It has to do with the uh, police officer who's in the room, whether or not he decides to record and the coroner could also make the decision to record. Um, In a lot of cases, uh, sometimes coroners and medical examiners like to speak into um, voice recorders just so they can refer back to them when they're making notes for their observations. Because as you can imagine, while you're performing an autopsy, it's very difficult to stop and then take notes. So sometimes they find voice recorders to be easier. Okay. So it's not abnormal. It's just not the norm, if that makes sense. No, it does. So this report was completed early the next day after the incident. Detectives working the case had found out that the death was ruled a homicide and that their main suspect, Ryan Widmer, had lawyered up. Because of this, they chose to forego the formal questioning and just issue a warrant for his arrest. 
The county in which this crime occurred, Warren County, is conservative and peaceful. So this made massive news. Their sleepy little development of Hopewell Valley was now front and center on the national news. And after the county prosecutor had a news briefing two days after Ryan had found Sarah in the tub, the headlines covered the news conference read, Hamilton Township Homicide. So this was a big deal for Warren County. The prosecutor stated that the county coroner had found trauma to Sarah's body that had not been consistent with a fall or any other accidental causes. She went on to say that the injuries that she suffered would not have been obviously noted at the scene, but to the county coroner's trained eye, they were evident. When Ryan's lawyer called him about the warrant for his arrest, he was at the funeral home with his mother and Sarah's mother and aunt, uh, basically planning out what Sarah's funeral was going to look like. Earlier that day, Ryan had met with his lawyer in person. News had gotten out that Ryan was beginning to be seen as a suspect, so his lawyer told him that he should not talk with police and that they should get another doctor to perform a second autopsy on Sarah. Sarah's family had asked Ryan to make the call about Sarah's funeral arrangements and whether she was cremated or buried. He reflected that he did not know what Sarah wanted because they never spoke about it. He decided that he would want to be cremated, so he chose that for her too. But he also had to tell the funeral home that they had to preserve her body until the second autopsy could be performed. That's also a lot of work too, to try to get another doctor in there to perform another autopsy. And it also, I could imagine, you know, just thinking if Ryan is innocent, having to go through the loss of your wife, planning her funeral, and then having to tell the funeral director and her mother, hey, because I need to prove my innocence, we have to preserve her body and basically like defile it again with a second autopsy. Yeah. Like, that's, that's hard. That is hard. Also, I wanted to add, if the second doctor or the you know the second person performing this autopsy, if it comes back to be the same findings, wouldn't that hurt his case? Yes, it would. And then what would happen would be they would choose just not to use the testimony of that doctor. Yeah, so it's kind of like a catch-22. It is. But it also shows to a jury, I would believe, confidence in the fact that, hey, I know I didn't do this, so I ordered a second autopsy to be done. Right. I mean, that, that that's your hopes that that would... That would be your yeah. hopes. Hopefully you just didn't kill your wife. I mean... Right. So after he got the call from his lawyer, Ryan reported to his lawyer's office where they called the police and Ryan turned himself in. He was promptly booked, arrested, and charged with the murder of his wife. The charge was aggravated murder. At first, he was just accused of murder, but then they upped it to aggravated murder. And this is a charge beyond murder. It means that the murder was planned to some extent or that the perpetrator had time to think about what he or she was doing and did not stop themselves from committing the murder. I also just want to add at this point that the Stewart family was fully behind Ryan. They did not think that he did anything to hurt Sarah. 
Ryan's lawyer was surprised with these charges as well. Like, nobody expected Ryan to be accused of murder here. Uh, He was the guy that had no priors on his record. He didn't even have a history of fighting with his wife in public or private. So this jump to murder was really shocking to everyone involved in Ryan and Sarah's life. Yeah, I mean, how how, how could it not be? Once Ryan was arrested, things moved pretty quickly. A search warrant was served on the house and bail had been initially set at $1 million. But after a few days, Ryan's lawyer was able to get bail reduced to 400000 The person to post his 10% was actually his father, whom he had not spoken to in eight years. He told Ryan that he stood behind him and his family and that they were going to get through this together. So actually, Ryan reconciled with his father during his trial. Yeah, it makes you think. It it does make you think like like from the beginning of all this, like how like he chose to not mm-hmm. um, speak to his father. But it just goes to show you, I guess you know, you know, some parents just no matter what, they'll always be there for their kids. So yes, and you know. I think it went really well for Ryan's father and mother because this allowed them to reconcile as well. Like it's hard when your parents fight because then you choose. You do feel like you need to choose a side, but if your parents are together, then. You don't have to do that. Also shows that they can come together during a really traumatic time. Yeah. So. So when Ryan had met with his lawyer, they had chosen to hire Dr. Werner Spitz, the forensic pathologist that testified to Congress about the assassination of JFK and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He also testified during the O.J. Simpson trial. He was a very well-known and accredited forensic pathologist. He was set to perform the second autopsy on August 15th. Spitz agreed that the cause of Sarah's death was drowning. He observed external injuries to the front of Sarah's neck and to the left and right of her arms in the crease of her elbow. Um, Those massive bruises on the crease of her elbow, like her inner elbow, was because they tried to put an IV there. Oh, okay. You know what? Like you said, some of those injuries could have been from the paramedics moving the body and trying to do mm-hmm. everything. Okay. Um, there was injuries to her upper lip on the inside and to the nape of her neck. So that means like the bottom of her neck. Internally. Oh, you guys can't see me, but I pointed to it. I was just about to say, why did you do that? Well, I was showing you. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Internally, Spitz observed injuries to Sarah's scalp a tear in her liver, and hemorrhaging to her neck. Spitz did not find any evidence of petechial hemorrhaging. And that's really interesting because petechial hemorrhaging is associated with um, someone being asphyxiated or someone struggling because they're drowning. That's a good point. He had not found that. Spitz was unable to determine whether Sarah's injuries, including the internal hemorrhaging to her neck, were caused by rigorous CPR or by some other means. So he had not been able to determine that. And for this reason, Spitz would not have ruled the manner of Sarah's death a homicide. Rather, he would have ruled her death undetermined. And you cannot prosecute an undetermined death. He basically was saying... We cannot determine whether these injuries came from attempts to revive her 
or her death. And because we can't determine that, we can't necessarily say homicide. It creates reasonable doubt. And if there's reasonable doubt, someone cannot be convicted. Right. Also, even as far as the lacerated liver, like if you don't know what you're doing, and I know I know for some this might be a stretch, but to someone, you know, to someone who doesn't know, you know, like a doctor or some sort of medical professional, if you don't know what you're doing and you're trying to perform CPR, you could possibly hurt organs while you're pushing down. Oh, yeah. I mean, or you know what I mean? Like, I I don't know what I'm doing. If well, I That gives me confidence. <laughs> sorry, you're, you're SOL. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, my God. But I'll make sure that the vocals quick. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, babe. I don't know. Anyway, you caught me <laughs> off guard. Anyway. You don't know what you could possibly do and how you could damage someone if you if you if you're not trained. So, like the medical examiner is saying, it causes reasonable doubt, and you cannot, you know, place blame, especially someone you know murdering their wife when it's inconclusive. I think this is really interesting, and it shows us really how much power the medical examiner has in their determination of uh, homicide or not. True. But, when it's a case like this, yeah, true, obviously, if someone but, gets shot. Yeah, true. But we still have a judge and we still have a jury of his peers. Yeah. So we will see. Good. Lots of faith in the system. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that bad of me? Is that wrong? No, I, we should have faith in our system. Unfortunately, it just you never know how it's going to go. True. It was interesting to hear that the medical examiner Ryan had hired had such a different ruling on her autopsy than the county coroner. And that's because in their news briefing, the prosecuting team had made it sound like there was this overwhelming evidence of murder from the autopsy report. Uh, when they did make a news briefing, they were like, you guys don't know, basically in like layman's terms, you guys have no idea what we found in the autopsy report. This is going to be a slam dunk case. And when a prosecutor says something along those lines, your media is going to react. And then all of a sudden now Ryan is public enemy number one and he becomes known as the bathtub killer. It's really bad press. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where I want to introduce an interesting addition to the case. Sarah and her sleeping habits. By now we know that... Ryan immediately yelled out to the 911 operator that his wife had fallen asleep in the tub, and it made him sound as if he was trying to explain himself away somehow. But there may have been a deeper meaning to what he was trying to do, rather than just make an excuse for himself. Maybe he was just trying to make sense of what could have happened to his wife, and falling asleep was something that Sarah did often. Sarah was very well known for falling asleep in any and every situation. A lot. She had been known to fall asleep at bars, tailgating events, actual professional sporting events, movie theaters, and in bathtubs. And this was not just something that happened with Ryan. Like, a lot of people thought, like, is this condition cooked up by the defense? It wasn't. Uh, Sarah's family confirmed several times that she would fall asleep all the time in the strangest of situations. Her friends did as well. In fact, at one of her friend's baby showers, they were giving out name tags to all of the guests and the name tag like described you and Sarah's was the sleeper. 
That's interesting. Could this be brought on by some sort of either maybe medication that she's taking or maybe an, un, an underlining illness? Yeah, that's very true. Another one of Sarah's friends, the one that introduced her to Ryan, stated that she was growing concerned about Sarah's sleeping habits. She was studying to become an RN. Um, this is the girl. She was the receptionist at the dental um, office that Sarah worked at. And she had told Sarah that she really wanted her to talk to her doctor about the sleeping because it could be linked to another underlying issue, like you just said. Uh, it didn't make sense that this 24-year-old was so tired all the time. Ryan also shared this sentiment, and he had told Sarah many times that he wanted her to visit a doctor for her sleeping issues. Eventually, after a lot of convincing, Sarah saw her doctor in June of 2008, just two months before her death. When she got back home, Ryan asked what the doctor had said, and Sarah stated that the doctor told her that it was normal and that some people are just naturally more tired than others. Why do I get the sense that she's lying and not telling Ryan what the doctor actually said? Yeah, or she just doesn't think it's an issue and maybe she didn't bring it up. Or maybe she never went to the doctor. Oh, no, no. There's proof that she went to the doctor. She did go never to mind. the doctor. Never mind. This was for a regular checkup. So they just wanted her to talk about the sleeping issues that she was having at her regular checkup. Like this wasn't a visit to the doctor for her sleepiness. They had wanted her to bring it up. Okay. But I will say that. I mean, Sarah's a pretty vocal person, so I, I don't know if she wouldn't not bring it up. Like, I know that I'm a very like shy kind of like evasive person so like if i have like a medical issue i kind of explain it away to the doctor you know what i'm saying but you are vocal to me about it i yes to you i I tell you that i'm dying every day but (laughs) i like i'll be at the doctor and and i'll say oh my god i have this pain in my chest but it's actually fine like you know like i explain it away as i'm telling them about it yeah but but what you're saying and what i'm saying right even with us like, if you are vocal to me about an issue that you might be feeling, if you go to the doctor and you come back home, why would you be super vague and just be like, oh, they said it was normal. I'm fine. Right. Well, maybe she didn't bring it up to the doctor. And that seems to be more of the case. And Sarah really didn't think the sleeping thing was an issue because she said that she had been tired like this her whole life. Like, this has been happening since forever. So, I mean, maybe this is something that she doesn't think is an underlying issue because that underlying issue would have come out by now. Might be her thought process. Okay. But we don't know. So once this detail was made public, the court of public opinion was in full swing. Was this accidental or a homicide? The discussions were passionate and got more and more brutal. Eventually, those that wrote and posted articles about this case would have to disable their comment section because the mess it was turning into. Like, people were getting brutal. And honestly, that's how sometimes the true crime community can be. They can. The two arguments are going to break down into two very simple but so complex arguments. On the one side, you had people that thought that Ryan did it. And they would say, you can't fall asleep in a bathtub. And the other side, you have people who think Ryan didn't commit the crime. And their argument was, well, then where is the evidence 
he killed her. So it doesn't make sense how Sarah died, but everyone's right. Where's the evidence? It's a good point. I mean, I you you can't it's, say someone did something and there's no evidence to back up your claim. Right. Well, no physical physical evidence, evidence because there right. is a lot of circumstantial weird things that are going on. Right, per- perfectly put. But if you have no physical evidence, that's gonna make it extremely difficult for you to, you know, turn this around and say this guy is a murderer. We need to charge him. We need to put Without him away. Without a doubt, right. So in the beginning of the hearings and trials, Sarah's family was really standing behind Ryan. Sarah's brother was elected to be the Stewart family spokesperson, and he stated at Ryan's two initial hearings and to the media that he and the rest of his family did not believe that Ryan had been responsible for Sarah's death. Ryan was also in a lot of communication with the members of the Stewart family, all of whom supported him. Ryan was not able to be at Sarah's funeral because he was in prison. Uh, His father had posted bail for him, but to get out, it does take a while for you to be processed out. But her family, because Ryan couldn't be there, read the eulogy that Ryan had written for her. Okay, well, at least that was done. At some point during the trial, the communication between Ryan Widmer and the Stewart family was severed. The Stewart family also does not make any further statements to the media. One of the most obvious reasons why they might not have made any statements is because a gag order had been placed on all the witnesses for the trial, and many members of the Stewart family were set to testify during Ryan's trial. So I think that is kind of glaring here, that all of a sudden the Stewart family backed out of supporting Ryan, those that feel like Ryan is innocent. They say that the detective influenced the Stewart family and the Stewart family has never really come out and said why they stopped supporting Ryan. But again, they are the victims in this case and I don't think they need to answer for any of their actions. So if they choose not to make a statement as to why they wanted to stop talking to Ryan, the person who's accused of killing Sarah, then I really just don't think they need to answer for themselves i'll I'll put it to you i think how a majority of people who listen to our podcast would probably react to that Mm -hmm. is that's better like them not saying anything is probably just better off because they could just turn around and say a bunch of nasty remarks and say some really messed up things but they're not they're trying to be neutral until a verdict is reached and then they could move forward i think that that would is probably the best move to make right Right. I mean, if somebody if somebody is accused of murdering my daughter, I would want to wait and see how the trial goes and see what evidence is presented by both sides. You know, at the end of the day, they have only known this man for 10 months. So. Right. So, I mean, I think that's the safest play. Right. So that way it doesn't turn into a like a like a, you know, like a shitstorm. You know, you stay neutral and, you know, you do not input on anything until a verdict is reached. Like I said, I think that's just the best move to make. So I wouldn't look so much into that. I think that, like you said, they only know them for 10 months yeah. and they're not sure. So let's just be happy with the fact that they were on board with Ryan for a while. And now that we're getting to the nitty gritty, they're just choosing to be neutral until they figure out what's going on. I think it's actually a good move. I don't think that that's like 
that shows that any bad blood between the two or anything. Yeah, I think just to the media, it looked like, okay, well, now he's lost the support of Sarah's family. So something must have come well, out. that's because the media is looking for a story to sell. Exactly. Okay, so not, you know, sometimes the media can be, uh, it's like a... Well, they need to sell the It's story. a blessing and a curse. So... Yes. I also think that they've gone through the pain of losing Sarah, and I don't think they want to go through the pain of supporting Sarah's murderer, if in fact he is. True. So I also wanted to stop and note here that the media correspondence that often dealt with murder and or courtroom matters all reported that they were surprised at the speediness of the indictment, hearings, and trials for Ryan Widmer. An indictment being handed out within a week of the murder was usually reserved for criminals that were actually caught in the physical act. The ones that people have no doubt about. There really had been no investigation that took place. And because of this, they expected overwhelming evidence to be produced at the trial of Ryan Widmer. And of course, this idea was fueled by another statement made by the prosecutor's office that said that Sarah did die in a violent struggle and that there was physical and circumstantial evidence that made this clear that it was no accident. But at Ryan's trial, there was no overwhelming evidence. So why was he indicted so quickly? Why was there no further investigation? It just seemed very... It seemed like the police had a one-track mind. This was Ryan Whitmer, and they were going in on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I uh, once again, just my opinion, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it short. I feel like sometimes, you know... You know, you know, people say, oh, the police just gather all the information and the intel and present that to a judge and a jury, right? But don't you think that sometimes that's the most important part of an entire investigation and the process? Oh, yeah. Right? Because if you don't have sufficient information or it's not good enough or whatever, right, that's going to determine what the outcome is going to be at the end. Everyone focuses on the jury and the judge at the end of this. But the process, what you should be focused on is the beginning process. So if they have a one-track mind, like you said, then your outcome's bleak. That's very true. So in the little investigation that did take place, it was clear that the first place that the investigators wanted to go was that maybe Ryan had murdered Sarah because he was having an affair. Okay. So they did look at the couple's phone records and they talked to coworkers, friends, they interviewed everyone, and it was determined that there was no suspicious behavior going on on either of their parts. So there was no affairs. Okay, so there's no affair. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there was any financial difficulty. That's so... It's like we're on the same mind length. I mean, I, yeah. We, I mean, yeah, we but, try, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't try, but it just happens. I'm going to get into everything because, okay. in fact, the investigators couldn't find any clear motive as to why Ryan murdered his wife. The couple did not have any financial issues. In fact, they actually made really good money for a young couple in southwestern Ohio. Sarah made $60,000 a year and Ryan made $50,000 a year. So financially, they were great and there was no debts that the couple had. Okay. I mean, Ryan had some student loans, but they weren't a lot because remember, he did have that partial school scholarship. Yeah. I mean, so does almost every young kid coming out of college. Yes. Has the same debt. So, hey. Welcome to life in America. Welcome welcome to the real world. (laughs) There was no life insurance policies to cash in. 
Well, Sarah had filed the paperwork with her employer for a life insurance policy, but it had not taken effect yet. And Sarah did say that Ryan had been on her to file that paperwork, along with additional health care coverage that she was offered. So she did finally fill out the paperwork. That's like kind of like an Aflac-like insurance where you, if you get sick, they're going to cover your salary for a certain point of the year. Okay. It's like extended leave insurance. So Ryan was pushing her to get that because it was available at her place of work. So, I mean, I don't think that's unusual because we talk about that all the time, like getting life insurance and what insurance policies we have and stuff. I mean, yeah. I mean, you do those things to just kind of solidify your safety if indeed something ever goes wrong. Right. Um, where you can't go to work for an extended period of time. I don't look at that as anything uh, like off like nothing's off about that and i mean how much of an insurance policy are we talking about from the um, employer it's Um, probably not a lot right not a lot i mean i think it's in a reality when you own a property with somebody that there is a life insurance policy so i think that the total would have just covered the remainder of the mortgage right and you know what I, i know this sounds kind of morbid when i say it or just weird but like i mean you shouldn't be killing anybody right but why would you kill somebody like over 100 grand Right. Like, what the hell is that going to do? You're going to risk your entire life for a hundred grand. Exactly. So, to me, I mean, you shouldn't be doing that at all. But I'm just trying to say that there's nothing here that's weird. No, and actually, the paperwork was filled out, but the policies were not in play yet, and Ryan knew that. So, if he knew that the insurance policies weren't active. And that was his motive. Wouldn't he have just waited for the insurance policies to be active? So that's why it was kind of written off like, okay, that's not a motive here. Right. And in addition to phone records being searched, computer records were also searched. And in fact, um, there was nothing suspicious. Ryan had visited like some porn sites, but that's normal. It was nothing out of the ordinary. And there were a lot of references to Sarah's sleeplessness and migraines. So that was talked about as a pre-existing condition for her. Oh, so he was looking up like on the computer, you mean? like what? No, like in, in conversations with people, they dis- like Sarah discussed her sleepiness and migraines with people, like complaining okay. about migraine pain. Gotcha. Okay. At one point, investigators, during one of their searches of the house, they found a pink suitcase in the couple's laundry room that had clothes and toiletries in it. But soon after they found the bag, they found out that Sarah had taken a recent road trip with her mother to St. Louis. And, you know, that was just she hadn't unpacked it yet because she had come back the day before she was murdered, actually. So the only things the investigators gave the prosecution to work with was the suspicious 911 call in the eyes of some potential fingerprints on the tub. So this is interesting. They, they do put a lot of fingerprint dusting on the tub to crime scene forensic analysis analysis are going to look at the tub and they're going to determine that all of the fingerprinting is just normal for a bathtub but a third person was brought in and they said that it could indicate a drowning where there were forearm prints two forearm prints from a man because of the hair follicle impressions and 
that there was kind of like fingerprints being moved in an upward motion on the inside of the bathtub. But when you see, and we will put pictures of this on our Instagram of like the fingerprinting dust in the bathtub, it does look like fingers are moved up and down the bathtub, but they're actually really close together. So it, it, I just, it doesn't look like a, a struggle during a drowning. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's like every time we find something that looks like it could be uh, helpful, it turns out to be, you could, you could possibly write it off as being nothing abnormal. Well, this would be like, if you're struggling and you're being held down and under, your arms would be further apart. The upward movements are like the hands are close together, almost as like someone's trying to like take something out of a tub. Do you know what I'm saying? Like what? Like a wipe, like a swipe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in an upward motion. In an upward motion, yeah. The theory that Ryan was drunk. So this is new. So Ryan admitted to having four beers that night, and there were a lot of beers in the fridge. So they thought maybe he had become intoxicated, got angry about something, and that was a motive. There were also two envelopes found in their nightstand that said, in case of a marriage emergency, that had resources for them through their church. So in order to get married in their church, they had to go through marriage counseling um, with their pastor. And they did receive um, some resources through their church if there were ever problems. Those envelopes were kept in their nightstand. So they thought like, oh, does this show that there were problems? Uh, Ryan later said that they just put those envelopes in there because that's where they put them. I mean, that's something that's given to every couple that got married in that church. Right. I mean, you got to think at that point, like the way the way things are now in the, in the current environment, people get married and divorced a lot. So that's probably something within the church or their church more specifically that, you know, hey, you know, be a little try, you know, work toward, you know, work in your marriage, blah, blah, blah. They hand out pamphlets. Like Instead you said, of just getting divorced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then there were the two drops of blood on the carpet that were beneath Sarah's body where she had lain during um, the paramedics working on it. So far, all of this is circumstantial evidence. They were really hanging heavy on the physical evidence that the county coroner had given them. And that's really honestly what their whole case was built on at this point. Ryan's defense team was having a hard time getting the prosecution to reveal what the facts of the coroner's report were. They actually only got the report a week before trial had started. So in the eyes of the defense, it was actually pretty good that Ryan's lawyer had the foresight to order the second autopsy because he wouldn't have been able to if he got the information when he did from the prosecutor. Wow. Okay. Another complication that the defense had was the explanation for the two blood drops. So let's talk about the layout of the house for a second. The bathroom in which Sarah drowned was a really tight bathroom. It's not what would come to mind when somebody says master bathroom. There was a tub and a small strip of carpeted floor and then a vanity that took up the whole rest of the wall on the wall adjacent to where the tub is. So it was actually a really small bathroom, kind of set up the way like Jack and Jill bathrooms are set up. So 
it would have been impossible for Sarah to get the proper medical attention that she needed within the tight, small space she was initially laid on on the bathroom floor. So when she was moved from the floor in the bathroom onto the stretcher, beneath her body were two bloodstains. And there was one where her pelvis was and one where her head had been. So Ryan explained to his lawyers that when the 911 operator first told him to take Sarah's body out of the tub, he was unable to give her CPR in the bathroom because there wasn't enough room to lay Sarah's body out and kneel next to her. So when he took her body from the bathtub, he, her body was half in the bathroom, half in the master bedroom. So where her upper portion, so I would say from her like chest up was in the master bedroom and the rest of her body was in the bathroom, which ironically is where he proposed to her, which is just a morbid fact. Uh, And that's where he had initially tried to do CPR. Ryan told his lawyers that when the first responding officer came to the scene, that the officer instructed Ryan to move her body further into the master bedroom. So where Ryan moved Sarah's body the first time, there was like a frothy blood coming out of her mouth and it dripped on the floor. Okay. Then the officer said, move her further into the bedroom. So then he moved her further up again. And that would explain the two marks why one was by her pelvis, one was by her head, because the one that was by her pelvis was where her head had initially been when Ryan first took her out of the bathtub. Okay. Well, that makes a little bit more sense now. The two bloodstains, yes, because her body was moved twice. Now, all the defense needed was the police officer to corroborate this story, but he didn't do so. The police officer said he doesn't remember that. Okay. And he said that Sarah's body was in that second position when he arrived. Maybe Ryan, with the chaos of it all, um, moved it and got confused about the the events. Maybe the officer was confused about the events that took place. Um, either way, it's really the only explanation as to the two blood stains, because no other parts of her body were bleeding at that point. Right, and there's no other evidence of anything else on the floor, and you know what I mean? Except for that, right. those two spots. So that's just the explanation of the two blood spots. Okay. The only thing that is hurting Ryan in this case, and the only thing that's relevant about the two blood stains, is that Ryan's story of the officer telling him to move the body further was not corroborated by the officer. So that's another inconsistency. Um, and that's one of the biggest things the prosecution says is that Ryan's stories can like are so inconsistent. Yeah. That, that doesn't really help his case. No, but... not at all. So the trial was set for late March of 2009. And as always, we're going to briefly lay out both sides. So the trial was definitely intense. A packed courtroom and concealed cameras were filming for Dateline, and it lasted seven days with over 40 witnesses. So first, let's talk about the prosecution's case. In the opening statement, they revealed the physical evidence. Uh, We talked about it before with the county coroner's report, 
Uh, what they really put a lot of emphasis on was the hemorrhaging in the deep muscles of the neck and bruising on Sarah's body. They started with the 911 call and played the call in its entirety, like we did for you. And they called to the stand the 911 operator that spoke to Ryan that day. And the operator claimed that he thought Ryan was too calm. And he implied that he thought Ryan was not performing CPR. And it sounded instead like he was blowing into his phone. Yeah, I mean, it. yeah, I know. It does sound like that in the beginning. But you do hear it. You do hear him attempting afterwards, like shortly after. Right. Then the first cop at the scene was called and he contradicted Ryan's story of moving the body. So, again, that didn't look good for him. Then the medics at the scene commented that the scene was really dry and they said that they were gentle in all of their life-saving techniques. And they even showed the techniques that they used. But when they did this, it didn't seem good for the prosecution because it appeared that they had actually had to manipulate Sarah's neck a lot and they had to be rougher than they first stated. To perform the procedure that they had to do, they had to, they did have to apply 10 pounds of pressure on her neck. Right. Also, I want to add this as well. That's like the way that they're going to show it is not the way that it would be in the real world with pressure. I totally With agree. someone's life on the line. You would not be taking your time uh, while you're trying to put a tube down her throat. Five or times. Five times, right. And trying to put IVs in her arms. You know, just as well as I, you're in the heat of the moment, no matter how good of a professional you are, you are in the moment and you are against the clock. Right. And they are even showing the jury at this point, oh, look how gentle we did it. So you have to imagine that they're taking as little force as possible. And like you said, it was probably not done that way. Yeah. I mean, you, you got someone's life on the line. Yeah. Especially it's, if you have to do way. it several times. Yeah. It's not going to be that way. A sleep expert testified that it would have been impossible to fall asleep in the tub. Your survival instincts would basically kick in unless there were drugs or alcohol in the victim's system. And Sarah only had traces of caffeine in her system. No drugs, no alcohol. But upon cross-examination, the expert admitted that 80% of those who suffer from narcolepsy, those who have a tendency to fall asleep often suffer from cataplexy, which is a sudden loss of muscular control. Now, see, that's interesting. Yes. Now, Sarah had never been tested for narcolepsy, but her symptoms seem to mirror somebody that has narcolepsy. So this didn't necessarily prove anything that it was definitely cataplexy, but it did create reasonable doubt. Right. Now... This was off. Remember when Sarah went to the doctor for her checkup and she was talking to the doctor about like sleep issues that she had two months before she passed away? Yep. Well, the doctor's records were subpoenaed and it was revealed that Sarah did not bring up her sleeping issues to her doctor as she had told Ryan and her friend that she had. See, I knew it. Now back to the sleep expert. More cross-examination questions. It was clear that the defense lawyer was trying to create reasonable doubt because he also asked about epileptic seizures or um, if she could have suffered from a heart malfunction, 
So like he was saying, she could have, could she have had a seizure? And he said, yes, she could have had a seizure. Sometimes like, um, migraine, like migraines are precursors to an epileptic episode. Um, and then they, the defense lawyer also asked like, could she have fallen asleep in the tub, ingested water, woke up in shock and had a heart malfunction? And the sleep expert said, yes, that is also possible. So here, what the defense is trying to do is create other scenarios besides falling asleep in the tub and what that really could have meant in Sarah's case. He was doing a good job establishing reasonable doubt here. In a very dramatic moment, the bathtub was brought in by like a team of people and it looked filthy, right? Because there's fingerprinting dust all over it. And, you know, we've, we've already discussed the fingerprints and you could believe one way or the other what the fingerprints are showing. It's very difficult to prove anything, especially because like if you fingerprinted our tub right now, I don't know what it would look like. It could look like someone drowned in there. Also, I want to say one thing because I thought about it. It just dropped my memory. Remember how they were talking about forearm prints? Yeah. Okay. Um, I hate to keep drawing comparisons, but if you were in the tub and you, like, let's just say you need help getting out for some reason, or I had to pull you out of the bathtub, um, I'm probably going to have to bend down and lean to get that initial, like, to pull that person out. So, you know, them saying, oh, yeah, the arms, you know, they're holding this person down because their forearm prints are on the tub. You could make the argument that he's he has his forearm prints there because he's trying to pull the body out when he was told to. Right. And I think that it was it was very obvious that these fingerprints were kind of like not really the best physical evidence to have, especially when um, in cross-examination, the defense asked, like, do you know if you're the first fingerprinting expert that has been called? And he said, no, he's like the third. So right. that kind of showed like when you asked, what if the doctor also deter- that they did the second autopsy on determined that it was homicide. It was the same way with this fingerprinting expert. It's like, it looks kind of bad. Right. So then the detective came on the stand and he just kind of stated that he thought everything was rather dry and that there was magazine, a towel, and a rug, and it all seemed dry. But he did admit that he observed the scene two and a half hours later. Okay. Well, that's a decent amount of time for something to dry. Yes. Then the prosecution called a forensic scientist who they wanted to talk about the blood spots. But on cross, he admitted that the cut carpet... Now, this is really interesting. The cut carpet squares were actually soaking wet. They were. Yes, because they had been collected in a brown paper bag. And by the time they got to him to be analyzed, the brown paper bag had been soaked through. Which means when he pulled the body out... There was wetness. Yes. From her body or her hair. Correct. Now, the next witness I want to talk about is the county coroner, the one who said this was a homicide. He said that when he begun her autopsy, that it was a very sad scene. There was an IV tube protruding from the left side of her neck and a blue strap that encircled her neck that was there to secure the breathing tube. Then images from the autopsy were shown to the court. 
As they were displayed, Ryan shielded his eyes. The coroner explained that there were areas of hemorrhaging in the front of her neck and her upper chest, and in his opinion, those injuries occurred because those areas had been compressed or struck. He denied that CPR could have done that. He also found cuts on the back of her upper lip consistent with her teeth breaking into her mouth. He also said that she suffered three minor injuries of unknown age that were caused by pressure or blunt force trauma, but again, of an unknown age. The first was faint bruising on her forehead on the right side of her head near her hairline. The second injury was a trio of small bruises on the right side of her scalp. And the third was a superficial bruise on the nape of her neck. The prosecution asked if the bruise could have been caused by a thumb, and he said yes. They then introduced the idea of Ryan using a sleeper hold where the thumb is used to incapacitate someone, which, I mean, even I have to admit being neutral here, sounded like a, a crazy stretch. That he, like, they introduced this sleeper hold that's, like, used in jujitsu. Ryan had never taken jujitsu, so it was just, like, bizarre that he would know it. Like, it was, it was a little bit of a stretch, but I guess they were trying to claim it could have been done. Right, to claim that he is using a jiu-jitsu maneuver. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But what could have caused the bruises was never actually clarified in the county coroner's um, questioning with the prosecution. The defense then cross-examined the coroner. He was asked about the bruises that were on Sarah's inner elbow from where um, the IV line was attempted to be established by the medics that were um, working on her. He was asked why the bruises were so massive, and they were really big. They took up her whole inner elbow. The coroner explained that this was a result of hemodilution. This occurs when a drowning victim will have water infiltrate their bloodstream, which would exaggerate the appearance of injuries. Okay, that's, <laughs> see, that's a big deal, and I wonder why no one else caught this sooner but that would explain a lot that would explain all of her injuries yeah especially because they worked on her so that would not just mean her inner elbows but that would also mean her neck wouldn't it yes it's her bloodstream so anywhere on her body that's gonna happen yeah this is why so this is when the lawyer for the defense asked if that could have happened with the 45 minutes of cpr and the insertion of a breathing tube and an IV put in her neck. Like, couldn't that have caused the hemorrhaging? And the holding device that was placed around the breathing tube even. And the county coroner did admit that it was possible. Now, this goes against his initial rulings in saying that the injuries to Sarah's body could not have been caused by CPR. On the stand, he said that it was possible. Right, well, because that little piece of evidence was just kind of put out there. But yeah. that breaks open this, like, this thing breaks wide open with that, just that little piece of information. I can only, what's the it called he- again? Hemodilution. That. That breaks this whole thing apart. It's very interesting. Well, I think it creates 
a lot of reasonable doubt. A lot. (laughs) Another doctor was called to the stand to establish that he thought it looked like someone grabbed Sarah's neck. So that was his purpose of testimony. The defense on cross asked the doctor to demonstrate on a volunteer who was actually the son of the defense lawyer. Um, so he's like, hey, can you demonstrate that on my son? <laughs> <laughs> How the drowning could have taken place. And this got weird because at this point he said that Sarah could have been drowned in a sink, toilet or tub. Like what? We've been focusing on a drowning in a bathtub. So he had volunteered the these like bizarre holding positions. Like at one point he had the defense lawyer's son bent over backwards and the doctor was trying to imply that he could have that Ryan could have held Sarah backwards and drowned her upside down in the toilet. <laughs> uh, th- this is such a stretch. Cuz well that would have caused a disturbance. And I don't know. It's just. And why not test the toilet? Why not unbolt the toilet from the bathroom and bring it just like they did the tub? Well, I think what happened here was that they didn't think this guy was going to say toilet sink. Like, I think he was just nervous on the stand and said it. So at this point, everyone's really confused. They had Ryan on trial for murder, right? But the prosecution didn't know how she died. They didn't even have a scenario set up they they didn't have a motive and they don't know how he did it they don't even have a theory on how he did it so that was how the prosecution rested and it was not a good way to rest i just i would be so confused if i was part of that jury or just even in that courtroom i would be i just wouldn't even know what to say or think yeah it's it's a tough trial So the defense then called world-renowned Dr. Werner Spitz to the stand, and he testified that he had over 50 years experience. He literally wrote the textbook on forensic pathology, and he had performed and supervised over 60,000 autopsies. That's a lot. Yes. I mean, this guy's credibility is insane. Yes. And not to mention the county coroner, they asked him like if he was even um, a forensic pathologist certified and he said he was not. Great. So let's just take that guy's word, you know, possibly over an expert in the field Mm -hmm. that literally wrote the book. (laughs) Literally wrote the book. So he testified for hours, but the gist was, because I don't want to bore you too much with anything, that he would not have ruled Sarah's death a homicide. He would have stated that her cause of death was undetermined. And he came to that conclusion because there appeared to be no violent struggle in her surroundings or on her body. There were no wounds on Ryan. And he believed that the injuries present on her body were produced by resuscitation, intense, aggressive resuscitative procedures that were used to save her life and like if she would have had a faint heartbeat that potentially they would have saved her life but she was too far gone when they began so he wasn't saying that the medics paramedics did anything wrong but that's just what caused the injuries the injuries on sarah appeared exaggerated because the drowning process caused changes in the blood her lungs absorbed water 
which increased blood volume and blood pressure, which caused her red blood cells to explode in all of her injuries that occurred before, the keyword before, during and after her drowning were extremely exaggerated. So even past bruising got exaggerated. Okay. That, that helps his case, I would think. Yeah. He also added that if she did have an epileptic episode, that there was only a 25% chance that it would be detected by an autopsy. Like, usually when someone has an epileptic episode, it does not register within the brain, can't be determined within uh, taking a microscopic sample of someone's brain tissue. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. The testimony from Dr. Spitz was preceded by a parade of character witnesses for Ryan discussing his behavior and feelings towards Sarah. One witness that had recently played golf with Ryan the day before Sarah died stated that he was so excited because he and Sarah were about to adopt a puppy. Yeah, I mean, that's nice. I mean, why would you want to kill somebody? Getting a nice dog. Good point, John. I'm just saying no, you're building. I, I, oh, you're building towards something. You're yes. building that life that I'm trying to. And I was that's stupid, but no, you know it's what I not. Mean. It's not. I'm just kidding with you. It <laughs> it really is. It shows where their mindset and where their relationship was. Like if you're fighting and you know you're like miserable, that's not. I think it shows that they were still in the honeymoon phase. Right, and any little thing made them happy. Yes. These witnesses also discussed Sarah's migraines and her sleepiness. Right. And before we learned that migraines can precede epileptic episodes. So and it's just creating more and more reasonable doubt. Something really weird came up during Ryan's mother's testimony. Uh, A woman's DNA under Sarah's fingernails was tested uh, because DNA was found under Sarah's fingernails, but it was from a woman. So they tested it against the four women that Sarah had seen that day at work, and they were all not matches. So that was weird. And everyone was kind of caught off guard by that questioning. But then it went away as soon as it was brought up. Like the defense or the prosecution never brought it up again. But we'll get into that later. So finally, a second doctor was called on the stands to just kind of back up everything Dr. Spitz said. Okay. Both sides gave their closing arguments and left it in the hands of the jury. The jury deliberated for 23 hours. And then they came back. Are you ready? I'm ready. On count one of aggravated murder, Ryan was found not guilty. Okay. For aggravated murder. Mm -hmm. Okay. On count two, Ryan was found guilty of murder. Okay. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Now, that was such a dramatic moment in the courtroom because when he was found not guilty of count one, everyone really breathed a sigh of relief. And then when he was found guilty of murder, the courtroom erupted into sobbing. I mean, yeah, because it's like you're trying, you you just convicted someone of murder without any physical evidence. Well, that verdict is going to be overthrown. Oh, because jurors later admitted to Kentucky. <laughs> oh, my God, this is so bad because I feel like this is something I would do. I probably wouldn't have talked to anyone about it, but I would have 100 percented it. Jurors later admitted that they conducted their own home experiments. 
They didn't dry themselves off after showers because they wanted to see how long it would take them to dry off. And I think they got the idea from this because one of the doctors admitted to doing this on the stand. And he said it took him seven minutes for his body to be completely dry. So they tried it too. But they discussed their findings during deliberation. You're fully instructed to not do your own experiments and to not discuss them during deliberations. But they did. And because of this, Ryan was granted a second trial. Um, During this second trial, they're going to bring up the fact that that random DNA that was under her fingers wasn't retested. uh, And they really are going to focus on the fact that it was all circumstantial evidence. Now, that trial resulted in a hung jury. They had tried to deliberate for two and a half days, but could not come to a conclusion. So Ryan Widmer was given a third trial, which lasted 13 days and had 44 witnesses. Jurors deliberated for a day and a half, and they found Ryan Widmer guilty of murder again. And unless his lawyer's appeals are accepted... Um, I know recently they had stated that he was not going to be granted a fourth trial, but he's not eligible for release from prison until July of 2025. He was arrested at 29 years old and he's now 40 years old. Yeah, that's really horrible. Um, I just think that it's just such an interesting case and it really captivated the world of was that 911 call real? Was it dry was it not dry in the bathtub in the master bedroom area was there enough reasonable doubt to not convict ryan winmer i don't think there was enough physical evidence to convict him i will say that i think that when you do cases like this where it's kind of undetermined you really don't know and like you know whether no matter what side you're on um either for him or against him i always feel that it's that to just say it was the husband that killed his wife. What an easy cop-out story that is. Now, not to say that that's, you know, I mean, it does happen. Well, to even deem that a homicide, I think, is a is an interesting jump as well. When we hear about the, the hemodilution and what it can do to the body. I think that is the biggest break in the entire investigation, the entire trial. Um, like I said, I just don't believe that you can just sit here and say it's cut and dry. Oh, he killed his wife. It's a done deal. I just, that's why I'm more on his side because there has to, there's more to this than just what he had four beers and flipped out and snapped and, 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 and had his hands on her and, and drowned her in a bathtub. Yeah. That I think is just too, like it's too simple, too straightforward. It's just, I don't know. I don't believe it. It's a, it's a very interesting case. And the people that, um, Support Ryan's innocence, full-fledged support him, and those that believe he's guilty, you know, they're very passionate about their side as well. But it is sad that Sarah lost her life, whether it's because of a medical condition or um, medical event that happened, um, whether it was an epileptic episode or she had cataplexy. I think that it's sad that she lost her life at such a young age. And it's sad that if her husband didn't do it, that his life was ruined by this event as well. I mean, 100%. At, at, at the end of this, someone died. 
And two and people lost their lives. Pretty much. And it's hard to sit here to, like, you know, put blame on someone. It, it's There's just not enough evidence. And the mismanagement of some of the things are, you know, it just doesn't help the case. So That they focused on him too much, like, immediately, you're saying? Yeah, one-track mind. Yeah. You know? Well, this is an interesting one, and we really, really are looking forward to hear what you think about the case and whether or not you think Ryan Widmer is innocent or guilty. Um, Because we love hearing your feedback from the episodes. I'll also just say, so, you know, to wrap up my whole entire thing here, I do believe that he's innocent. Okay. That's where my head's at. I I tried to do a very good job of staying neutral throughout this entire case. No, I I think you did a great job. I I think that you just kind of, you you know, there were times that you might have, you know, smelt like something was off. Like you were just kind of like, you know, that's weird or that has no relevance. I think it's like the (laughs) jujitsu move is weird. Oh, yeah. That one I was like, I I just, because I have to, I do have to note when like the audience of the trial reacted. No, and that's a good thing to do because that's, that's something that would have, totally been they would have been scratching their heads like yeah. what what do you mean he's never done this before he doesn't know jiu-jitsu right so 100 percent. i think you did a great job and yeah well thanks john no problem well before we go we do want to thank some of our our new patrons on patreon and thank them so much for their supportive pledges and the fact that they're keeping this show going so we want to thank jennifer smith for upping her pledge heather korovitz Jenny O'Hara, Brandon S. also upped his pledge, Courtney Yoon, Ava Beattie Olson, Janae Henry, Carrie Orlovsky, Anna Marie Carstairs, Tammy Hinchy, Nicole Spencer, Caitlin Milner, Trisha, Grace, Bethany, Nicholas Suzuki, Nicholas, I definitely said your last name wrong. If you want to tell me how to pronounce it, I will give you a strong redo. <laughs> Jay Patani, Beth Rosenthal, and Grace Dennison. Thank you so much for your new contributions, and we hope you're enjoying all of your new benefits from Patreon. All right, guys. We hope you enjoyed the case, and we hope you have a good week. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.